Hi, it's Mike, and it's Saturday, and that means it's a Saturday show. And if it's a Saturday show, it means it's one day before Sunday. And if it's Sunday, it's Meet the Press. Also, this Sunday is actually Super Bowl Sunday. But if nothing else, me reminding you that Saturday comes before Sunday, that's useful, that's helpful, that helps you orient your calendar. Mike, how many days hath September, April, June, and November? Well, I'll get to that. I don't want to tip my hand. That's in future episodes of the Gist's Saturday show. 30, by the way, 30. But I do want to talk about Meet the Press, which featured in one of the best segments of the week, so saith the uh, if. I'm ending a lot of words with th. I'm speaking in Old English slash Old Testament. But so saith many of the listeners, they liked uh, my talking about Kristen Welker and her tendency to get you with the follow-up when it's warranted or unwarranted. We'll replay that. And I'm also, as a nod to the Super Bowl, those Baltimore Ravens aren't in it. John Erlacher was on the offensive line for the Ravens for many years, but that's not what makes him so interesting. What makes him so interesting, as you'll hear in this interview conducted in June of 2019, is his non-football aspirations and inclinations. He loves chess. He studied math, studied it hard. In fact, got advanced degrees in the subject, It made for an interesting conversation with Erlacher and his uh, co-author and wife of his book, Louisa Thomas. I bring you that. I bring you Welker. And here it is all for you right now on this Saturday, the day before Sunday. So finally on the gist, there comes a time when I get to talk about a topic that I've just been fascinated with for a long time, but I haven't had the right guest. Yes, it's time to talk about centroidal Voronoi tessellations. I'm I'm kidding. I'm lying. But John Urschel, my guest, his eyes lit up a little bit because that's what he's studying at MIT. He is a former NFL player who now is a top mathematician. I'm going to say top. I mean, I'm looking at the cover of his book and there's a lot of impressive looking uh, uh, formulas. So that, that says top to me. And he's out with a new book with his wife, Louisa Thomas. It's na- the name of the book is Mind and Matter, A Life in Math and Football. And Louisa uh, wrote a chapter for my book upon further review. And she has been on the gist before and is one of my favorite writers. And I want to talk about the contents of the book and the project of writing it together. Thank you guys for coming in. Thanks for having us. Thank you. All right. So You probably, you say in the book, John, that you got, I don't know if the word is annoyed, you understand why people would ask it, but uh, the people who are interested in you while you were playing football, the fact that you had this math sideline, they always try to make a connection that wasn't there, which is, I guess, we can expect it out of human beings, but was it just a strained analogy they were trying to make, or why do you think people grasp so hard to try to analogize math with football? Well, I... uh... I don't know. I feel like this is sort of human nature. You Mm -hmm. always want to make connections out of things that aren't there. I mean, this is actually human nature. And I have to admit that, you know, I'm embarrassed to say that I have gone on interviews and I've said, you know, yeah, math math helps me learn the playbook or like what – I tell people what they want to hear. Mm -hmm. But like really what connects the two of these things is that there are two things that I really love. Yeah. There are two things that I did at a high level. 
And I've come to realize that when you try to be really, really good at something, the characteristics that lead you to that, no matter what the field, are the same. So an unreasonable love for what you're doing, a sort of drive to succeed, and sort of a resiliency in the face of a lot of adversity and a lot of setbacks. And of course, you need some talent, but these are the things that sort of make you good at something. And so I find that that's what sort of being good at two things almost always has in common. So in writing the book, what you guys had to do was decide how to present the math parts, how to present the football parts. And since you say early on what you just said, John, they're separate, you just separated them. You just alternated. It was pretty cool. It was actually, very easy to understand. Yeah, it was actually, um, it was very funny because writers are very prone to making uh, connections between between different things. I mean, that's what a, a metaphor is. I yes. mean, that's sort of like one of the main tools of the trade. Um, and in the first draft, I will admit, you're reading the final version, not the first version. And in the first draft, we tried to integrate it a lot more. And um, it didn't really work, actually, because it wasn't true. John really did have a kind of football life and a math life. And what connected them was 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 him. Um, and so in the end, we were like, well, why don't we just do the math and do the football and do the math and do the football? And uh, hopefully, if the voice is true and the person behind it is real, then those things will cohere. But yeah. um, we shouldn't try and force it in both. Yeah. I have read studies, though, that certain positions in football correlate to certain personalities. Do you think offensive linemen, is it not true that offensive linemen are perhaps slightly more sensible than, let me name a couple other position, like defensive linemen, defensive ends, blitzing linebackers? I find that offensive linemen are a little bit more sensible. I think we're a little more sensible, too, and I think it might have something to do with I think offensive line as a position more than a lot of other positions like defensive tackle require a lot of hard work, Mm -hmm. a lot of practice, a lot of honing your technique. A lot of the techniques you use as an offensive lineman are sort of unnatural in a way. Yeah. And so I think the characteristics that lead you to succeed as an offensive lineman, having to work with other people, your sort of success on the field, being intimately tied to the people playing next to you. I think that sort of suits people with certain characteristics better. But there was there's another thing. Okay, so this is this is actually not math and football, but it's personality. You just mentioned that maybe one reason offensive linemen are the way they are in general is that they have to be cohesive and work with a group. Mm-hmm. You write about strategizing becoming a part of the group. You were an outsider type kid and then you make the, you made this conscious intellectual choice mm-hmm. to become part of a group. Yes. So there, to me, that says a little bit of an intellectual choice, uh, something that most people would either go about emotionally or naturally without even thinking about it. You made an intellectual choice that in some way comports with uh, the at least the position you played in football. Yeah, yeah, I suppose so. I mean, uh, I like to think the majority of my choices at least should be intellectually Well, most people, but no, I mean, like you even say in the book that you you were what, made to lick a tree when you were in elementary school. That's true. And you knew you were, would we say nerdy, the kid, were you a nerdy kid is why you were an outsider? You were just into your own thing. Well, I was fat as well. Uh Uh-huh. You know, so I was fat, I was nerdy, I mean, but yeah, there were a number of reasons and I did get bullied and yes, this was 
somewhat scarring for me as a young person. And I sort of decided, you know what? How do I fix this? What are all the other kids doing? Let me do what the cool kids are doing and I will be fine. And what do you know? I started doing what they were doing. I started playing lacrosse. I started doing street hockey. And all of a sudden, I was fine. Yeah. And this is uh, the sentence in the book is, I think, conformity is a beautiful thing. It's true. Okay. Not So first of all, yeah. I should say, I want to qualify this. This is not necessarily what I'm recommending as the solution to, let's say, the no. you know, problem of bullying in schools. But Your kid comes to you with the problem. You wouldn't say you need to conform. Find yes, out what they're no, into. No, no. Do that. No, this yeah. is not the advice I'm giving kids around the country, but yeah. I wanted to stop getting bullied. Yeah. This was my solution. Who wrote, who came up with the sentence, that sentence itself? Oh, that's my sentence. Yeah. That's your yes, sentence. that is my sentence. What do you think, Louisa, what do you think when he said that sentence? Oh, he actually said it to me uh, like years before. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, I, I say this anytime I talk about like this time in my life. No, this is this is something I say. It was um, a memorable sentence yeah. and he said it early on and I was uh, ready to deploy it at the right yeah. moment. Yeah. In fact, there's a, there's a poster that I always think of. I don't know if you've seen this poster. It's a poster. And it's a bunch of penguins. Yeah. And it says conformity on the top. The odd one out gets left in the cold. And it just shows like a penguin by itself. And like this is, uh, this is what I think of. This yeah. is what I think of when I think of my, my younger self. But to the world of penguins reading that poster, they'd be like, I don't understand. They're all distinct. I can totally tell them <laughs> apart. <laughs> it doesn't scan in the penguin world. If you had to reform both of your fields in a way that you think is doable. So I'm not going to have you reinvent the game of football, but what would some of your, some of the ways that football can be improved and math can be improved? And you could take this wherever you want, like how math is being taught, how the, the sixth grader learns math, what's the yes, methods I would, at the college level. I would, would focus you? on how math is being taught. Yeah. I would, uh, well, okay, suppose you're a young person and you're in a math classroom. I want you to know what people use mathematics for in our world at a high level. I would love every single math classroom to say, have a poster of famous mathematicians, to have a poster of showing elite computer scientists, who of course are using high level math, uh, show posters of very successful people in finance, show sort of all the different careers that a mathematician sort of can pursue and all the sort of fields that really use math at a very, very high level. That would be good. And what about your football reforms? Oh, football's good the way it is. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no problems. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When You know who I identified with and I thought made the correct calls during the book is your mom. When she wanted you to go to Stanford, it's mm-hmm. a good football team. Like, you could play football at Stanford and also get a, an advanced degree. And then after the Paterno scandal, mm-hmm. sorry, I should call it the Sandusky scandal, Paterno steps down, you have a chance to go to Stanford. If I was her, I'd have made the same advice. But as you explained it in your book, I uh, totally get and respect why you stayed. The team, the brotherhood, yeah. the bond between your teammates. Absolutely. I mean, when I look back on my career as a football player, my years at Penn State were my absolute favorite years of football playing for the university that's given me so much, wearing that jersey, representing my school, going out on Saturdays in front of 106,000 fans with my best friends in the world. Like the guys next to me, you know, I was playing right guard. My center, he was my best man. My right tackle, may he rest in peace, was one of my best friends. Mm. And I have to say that there's just something amazing about being so close where 
we did everything together. Like, you know, we go to practice together, we watch film together, we eat together, we hang out together, we go out on the weekends together. It's uh, like it's a closeness that you're not going to find in many other places. I don't know where else. Does it make you jealous given what we do? There's no camaraderie <laughs> like that in journalism. It's true. A, a writing is a, a little bit lonely. Um, John will tell you that sometimes he would go to football practice and he'd be exhausted when he came home. And I'd have been at home writing all day. And he would come in, and I'd be like, Baba, I can't wait to talk to a human being. And yeah, he'd be like, yeah. whoa, let yeah, me yeah. relax. It was a, like, it's a, because, it, you know, I'm playing pro football, and, you know, it's a full time job. Okay, it's not like, okay, first of all, pro football sort of environment was way different than what I had at Penn State. Even I've come to learn most college football environments were very different than what I had at Penn State. Oh, really? Because yeah. I think most college environments sell you on the idea that it's like yeah. the brotherhood of Penn but State. But I think it's not. Huh. I think it's not. Like, I've talked to sort of teammates of mine in the league, and when I t- tell them, like, what my college experience was like, and they tell me what their college experience was like, we were so much closer at Penn State than it seems like uh, at other places. And, and not because necessarily you went through it, the scandal that you went through? I uh, I think that has something to do with it. I think another thing that has to do with it is, okay, I mean, okay, this is going to sound ridiculous, but uh, I think Penn State legitimately recruited good guys. Yeah. Like, we always had a, one of the highest graduation rates in the country, often like one, two, or three. Graduating was important. Academics were important. Being a good young man, growing up to be a good man, like this, this was an important thing that was really talked about. What you did outside of football mattered. How you carried yourself, this was really important. And I have to say, like, when I look at, you know, the teammates I had at Penn State, okay, every team has one or two bad apples. But by and large, this is just a group full of great guys who love football, who, you know, are just so happy to be a part of Penn State football. Whereas I talk to some of my, like, teammates in the league and they tell me like their teams were sort of kind of like there were some good guys on their team that they liked, yeah. but a lot of trash yeah. is, is you know the way it was described to me. And Do, I would say we had none of that at Penn State. I just I think that a case can be made, but you tell me you've gotten more elite in this field, math, mm-hmm. than you were in, in the NFL and football. And yet it does seem that you got so much attention for being in the NFL and comparatively less attention. I mean, the fact that you were able to do both, but Mm -hmm. look at a top mathematician and the attention paid to him by society. Look Mm -hmm. at a top NFL player and it's a gigantic disparity. I will definitely say that I think I have much more natural talent in mathematics and football. Mm -hmm. I had to work really, really hard to get where I sort of got to in football. It took a lot of work. Was there a piece of uh, journalism about John that you thought, because as detailed in the book, much of it is cliche and much of it is just hitting the notes that you know are very easy to hit. Was there ever the a really good or the definitive piece about John before this, do you think? Before the book? Um, yeah. Well, there was recently a profile by Jordan Ellenberg, who's a mathematician sure. that I quite liked. See, that's interesting because Ellenberg's a math writer. I mean, he's a writer-writer, but he's a mathematician. He loves sports. He's been on the show a bunch. Mm -hmm. That's interesting that it took the math guy, not the sports guy, to get it. Maybe. I mean, I think that sports writing can be really hard. I mean, it's hard for me a lot of times. You get limited access. And I think a lot of athletes are 
both trained to speak in cliches and also punished if they don't right. often. Like it never hurt you when you gave those fake answers about how math helps you on the field. No, absolutely not. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, if I have some interviews lined up that I have to do, why? Why would I have any interest in sort of like going into something more complicated mm-hmm. than it needs to be? It's also true that I think a lot of athletes or some great athletes really believe what they're saying. And it sounds cliched and silly and, yeah. and unbelievable yeah. um, to a journalist or on the page. It looks very flat and, and silly often. Yeah. But um, when you're actually speaking to them, often it's, especially if they're a little bit charismatic, like you actually become a, it's like talking to a true believer. I mean, there's yeah. almost something um, religious about the faith and confidence that a lot of athletes have, which I think is really integral to their success. So sometimes what seems like a cliche factory is actually much more important and and tied to their performance than you might otherwise assume. And then it's important for you to rely on something other than their quote to yeah. explain them to the reader. Yeah. Derek Jeter was always like that. Though. He's not introspective, but yeah. him not being introspective, see ball, hit ball is exactly what makes him Derek right. or one of the huge parts that makes him Derek Jeter. I yeah. Think. yeah. Yeah. So that's one of the, one of the big challenges. Yeah. Mind and Matter, A Life in Math and Football by John Urschel and Louisa Thomas. Thank you guys so much. Thanks for having us. Thank you. And now, the spiel. Kristen Welker, host of Meet the Press, has redefined her role as meet and meet and have you met and will you commit to meet the press? The unwavering follow-up question, it is an important part of journalism when done well. But just like following rock with rock is sometimes an effective technique in rock, paper, scissors, going rock, 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 rock will give you nothing but a headache. Welker consistently, insistently refuses to take an answer or no answer for an answer, which is sometimes okay, but often extremely pointless and annoying as when the guest doesn't even evade the question, but flat out gives an understandable explanation for why they will not be answering the question. Perhaps the question wasn't a very sensible question to begin with. That's what happened this Sunday when the guest was National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. Have you ruled out strikes inside Iran? Well, sitting here today on a national news program, I'm not going to get into what we've ruled in and ruled out from the point of view of military action. What I will say is that the president is determined to respond forcefully to attacks on our people. The president also is not looking for a wider war in the Middle East. But is it off the table? Are strikes inside Iran off the table? Again, Kristen, sitting here on television, it would not be wise for me uh, to talk about what we're ruling in and ruling out. So you're not ruling it out? I'll just say the same thing one more time, which is I'm not going to get into what's on the table and off the table when it comes to the American response. And NBC generated a headline, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan refuses to rule out strikes inside Iran. Well, good. The first question, will you strike inside Iran? That's kind of a job application question. In other words, she's asking, will you violate your oath 
Will you give up some national security secrets, please? And then she follows up with, okay, but will you compromise national security or won't you? Just say it. And then after he says it again, she asks, okay, how about bombing coordinates? Will you commit to disclose those? I checked my internal sexism barometer on this one. I don't think that it's the fact that I'm finding the hard-charging journalist unladylike. I just find it pointless. Most of the hosts of the Sunday shows are women. Some weekends, when Martha Raddatz is in for George Stephanopoulos on ABC, and when it's Dana Bash's turn in the two-person rotation on CNN, every host is a woman. Here, Dana Bash has the same guest and the same question and the same initial response Check out how she handles the follow-up on State of the Union. You said it's just the beginning, and I just want to clarify. That means that there will be more strikes coming in the next few days? What it means is that we will take further action. I'm not going to obviously describe the character of that action because I don't want to telegraph our punches, uh, but there will be further action. Inside Iran, would you rule that out at this point? Look, sitting on a, a national TV program, I'm not going to rule in and rule out uh, any activity anywhere. Uh, what I am going to say is that the president will do what he thinks needs to be done and, again, reinforce the point that he's going to uh, defend our forces and also that he is not looking to get into a war. Well, he's not, but how worried are you that Iran, Iranian-backed forces, may retaliate again against U.S. forces? And if that happens, what would the consequences be? Well done. No cross-examinations on a question that Sullivan could not and very clearly should not answer. Before she began hosting Meet the Press, I always liked Kristen Welker. She's actually good at other aspects of her job. She was a good debate host. I've done some TV with her. She seems smart and nice and capable. But when sensible newswoman Kristen Welker recedes and we get insistent Kristen, I just shake my head. Who told her this was good journalism or good TV? Because she demands the follow-up quite often. Since we last chronicled this tactic just a few weeks ago, Welker has done it many, many, many more times. There was Sullivan. Here she is with Republican Senator Joni Ernst of Iowa before the caucuses in that state, which Donald Trump was clearly going to win. Welker needed to know, will Ernst endorse Trump? Former President Trump is tied effectively with President Biden. If Republicans want to win back the White House, is Nikki Haley your best bet? Well, I think she is a great candidate. Again, I'm not endorsing anyone in the Iowa caucuses, but if you look at the issues that- Okay, she's not endorsing before a caucus that Trump is sure to win, but maybe, Welker thought, if I ask her if she'll endorse Trump after the caucuses- Well, let me try to get at the question this way. Do you plan to endorse whichever candidate emerges as the winner after the Iowa caucuses? Well, it'll depend. Um, I have gone round and round in my mind. I do think that President Trump is going to win. We see such a large... Not going to endorse. But Welker had another question. No, it was the same question. Will you endorse? But, so just to be very clear, though, if Donald Trump wins tomorrow night, would you endorse him, Senator? Guess what Ernst said for the third time. So Welker asked again. Ernst says again, not going to endorse here. We'll play the tail end of Ernst's answer, and you might be able to guess what the follow-up possibly was. Again, Kristen, I'm not going to tip my hand uh, to who I might be supporting. <laughs> All right. Well, has Donald Trump asked for your endorsement, Senator? 
I have had a request from just about all of the candidates. <laughs> so, so again, I'm not endorsing and, uh, and we'll keep those discussions private. And you're not ruling out endorsing Donald Trump, though, if he wins or if he wins the nomination? She's not ruling it in. She's not ruling it out. But Welker is not getting a ruling. Sometimes a follow-up is really needed to nail an interviewee down because the interviewee is clearly ducking. And it's important to get an answer to those questions. But other times, lots of other times, of course the guest isn't going to answer. And the host knows it going in. Sometimes the guest just tells you, oh yeah, I'm not going to answer that. And all that the follow-ups do is offer another opportunity for little speechlets that surround the evasion. So, and the guests don't even mind this. It's like, sure, I'll find the time to talk. So when Welker asked Nikki Haley's surrogate, Chris Sununu, a question he certainly wasn't going to answer, he wound up, quite shockingly, not answering it. You've softened, though, those expectations. You're saying she can win. Yeah. Does she have to win? Is this oh, make no. or break for her to no, stay no, in No, no, she doesn't race? have to win. I mean, look, no, nobody goes from single digits to... Welker asked again. You say New Hampshire is not make or break, but if Haley can't win in her home state, can she continue in this race? What's her path if she can't win South Carolina? Yeah, look, that's, that's a month away. I'm, to be honest, not even looking at that. Right now, I'm looking at the next... And seven. to put a fine point on it, she asked the third time. Just to put a fine point on this, if she doesn't win South Carolina, is she going to need to take a hard look at her campaign and potentially reassess being in this race? You really think a Nikki Haley surrogate is going on Meet the Press and taking the opportunity to paint the campaign into a corner just because Kristen Welker asks? Well, what if I told you, what if she asks twice? Okay, how about a third time? So, you know, Kristen Welker was licking her chomps when she got Nikki Haley on the show. Surely Nikki Haley herself would crack in a way that Chris Sununu didn't. Just yes or no. Are you in this race through the convention beyond Super Tuesday? Yes or no? As long as I keep growing per state, I am in this race. I have through every intention of going to Super Tuesday. Through, through Super T- Tuesday, we're going to... Haley said, yes, you got me. Great question. No, she didn't say that. She said, I need to improve and do better, which Welker was not going to let stand, not for a minute. This is your home state. You were governor in the state of South Carolina. Do you need to win your home state in order to stay in this race? Is it do or die? I think I need to do better than I did in New Hampshire. So this is a build... To which Welker actually drew the wrong conclusion saying, quote, so I hear you're saying you're in this regardless of the results in South Carolina through Super Tuesday. It sounds like... No, it didn't sound like that. Not to me. I was listening. It's not about listening, I guess. It's about the aggressive follow-up. And I would say, sure, when warranted but not when not warranted or not likely to get an answer or not possible to get an answer or not proper to give an answer. Will I rule out watching more Kristen Welker? Well, I I actually hope she improves. Okay, so it's still on the table that she will be out of Mike Pesca's Sunday rotation. No, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that I'd like to see her. Do you condemn her performance? No, I'm definitely not saying that. So to put a fine point on it, what you're saying and what I'm hearing is that for Kristen Welker to get you back, she'll have to markedly improve and get one of her guests to crack. No, I'm saying that is not going to happen. And maybe she should consider the distinction between being a workhorse and beating a dead horse. All right. So I'm hearing you say it's going to be a photo finish. Okay. We'll have to leave it right there. And that's it for the Saturday show that just is produced by the quaint Mallards. Corey Wara, producer, Joel Patterson, senior producer. 
We'll talk to you Monday, day after Sunday.